So I'm really, I'm excited to be here today. My name is Casey Sylvia. Um, I am the Chief Staff Attorney at the Massachusetts Appeals Court. Um, before that, I was um, I was Senior Appellate Counsel at the Middlesex DA's office, and I ran the search warrant team there. And uh, my former colleague, Attorney Chi-Chi Lee, ADA Chi-Chi Lee, is, uh, is here with me today. So um, Chi-Chi uh, received his LLB and his BA in Political Science from Suzhou University, <clears throat> excuse me, in Taiwan, and his LLM from Duke Law School. And after graduating from Duke, he worked at a boutique law firm in North Carolina with a focus on Section 1983 litigation challenges, um, challenging sex offender registry laws. In 2019, uh, Chi-Chi joined the Middlesex DA's office, and we worked together there um, in the Appeals and Training Bureau. And he now oversees all immigration-related post-conviction matters in Middlesex County, and he trains prosecutors on um, laws related to the, where the intersection of criminal law and immigration law, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, and so, Matt is back uh, so, so Matt is the founding and managing partner of Cameron, Mitteroni, and Sylvia. Um, the Sylvia is my brother, Corey. <laughs> and uh, Matt graduated from Seton Hall Law School in 2005. Um, he formed his own law firm, um, now with two partners and support staff and other attorneys as well. And he focuses um, his work mainly on immigration, but also um, on post-conviction matters especially as they relate to immigration consequences. So he has lots of experience. And I will also mention that, uh, that Matt, uh, Matt is actually my husband. <laughs> um, so I'm, very, I'm excited to, uh, to be here with both of these guys today. And um, we're going to start out a little bit um, talking about what actually triggers immigration consequences. So Matt's going to talk a little bit about the background of immigration law. If you have any questions, um, just feel free to put them in the Q&A, and we'll either get to, I'll, I'll try, either try to get them to the panelists um, as you ask them, or we'll get to them towards the end of, of each section. All right, Matt. Okay, thank you. Uh, so I want this to be a conversation if possible. So Chi Chi and Casey, you're both welcome to jump in if you have questions or comments on stuff I'm talking about. And uh, you know, there is a lot to discuss here. This is kind of a speed run. We're not gonna hit everything in depth. I just wanna make sure that the basic concepts are covered. Um, and I'm gonna give my contact information at the end. I'm happy to talk to anybody who has further follow-up questions or if I can ever help with anything. So just going through the basics, I'm going to assume that you have some familiarity with the immigration system, but not very much if you're here, uh, but just enough that you want to know how to apply your analysis for a immigration case. So I'm just going to go through the basics here of immigration status. I'm just going to do this in 30 seconds. It doesn't have to take long because I think the, the most important thing as plea counsel in this department is obviously knowing what your client's immigration status is. And I've had a, a few situations where people don't or they get it wrong. Obviously, if your client misinforms you, that's up to your client. Uh, if they think they're a citizen and they're not, I don't think you really have an obligation to look behind that. Uh, that's been litigated, certainly. But, um, you know, unless it's just incredibly obvious that they're not for some reason. But if your client tells you that they're born in Mass General Hospital, that's pretty much the end of the analysis. If they're born in the United States, they're a United States citizen, and none of these consequences are going to apply to them. However, just a reminder, the immigration system is huge. It's massive. There's a lot of different ways to get to these statuses. This is my favorite overall graphic on how to become a lawful permanent resident. You don't have to take, take too much time to study it, but basically almost everybody becomes an LPR through marriage or through, excuse me, through, through family, but most commonly marriage or through employment. There are other ways. There aren't very many, but contrary to public opinion, there is no sort of general line that you can wait in. There's nothing you can apply for. Uh, if you want to just become a resident, it's got to be based on some kind of existing relationship. And how do you find out what your client's status is? You might want to ask them for ID. 
Um, and just to be sure, this is a what is commonly known as a green card. It hasn't been green since about 1964, but we keep calling it a green card. You can see there's a little bit of coral maybe on there. I'm kind of colorblind, but I don't think that's really green. Uh, but that is lawful permanent residency. That means that you have permission to be here, and it's one step from being a citizen. Once you've been a citizen for five years in any LPR status, you get to become a citizen. Many people don't for one reason or another. You're not required to. And if, if your client shows you this card, then you certainly want to be sure that you're not entering into a plea that's going to cost them that status if they can possibly help it. Because there are, contrary to public, a lot of opinion that I've heard, uh, there are many ways that a lawful permanent resident can be deported. And permanent doesn't necessarily mean permanent. That's something that people really get hung up on sometimes, especially my clients. If they show you an ID card that looks like this, this is employment authorization, as it says right on the face of it there. And that means they're in a far less secure immigration status. Typically, that means they're either waiting on some other form of status or they're a student uh, they might have uh, asylum of some kind. They may have uh, DACA or TPS, which are statuses you might have heard about. But these are not going to be secure permanent statuses the way that a green card is. So there's something else to look out for. And of course, if they have no immigration status and if they tell you they're undocumented, then that's going to it's another set of responsibilities as well that we'll talk about. All right. So just some basics on, on immigration, on what we need to know uh, to, to put together one of these motions and some of the things to consider. Um, so I'm going to tell you a few times over to call an immigration attorney whenever possible. If you have anybody on hand, I'm happy to talk about this, but, uh, you want to make sure that you check in with somebody or tell your client to check in with somebody. If it's not certain, if, if there's an immigration consequence that seems somewhat ambiguous, um, if they think, if you think they need a little bit of advice on what's ahead, then you certainly should talk to somebody. Um, this is a pretty common one. I think everybody knows this by now, but I just want to stress that it continues without a finding which is not a conviction in Massachusetts, is a conviction for federal immigration purposes. And the reason for that is that the definition of a conviction under INA 101 is very different from our definition of a conviction. A conviction for federal purposes only requires that you have uh, an admission of guilt and some form of punishment. So that can be as simple as a quaff and uh, a couple of days of probation. That doesn't have to be very much. But as long as there's a restriction on your liberty of some kind, along with an admission of guilt, even if it's something like an alternative sentencing program like we have here in Massachusetts, basically every state has some version of, of a quaff of an alternative sentence that doesn't result in a permanent record. The idea, of course, in Massachusetts and other states was to keep you from having to bear the burden of a permanent record. But the federal government figured this out in 1996, and Congress went out of their way to make sure that things like a quaff become a conviction. So that's just ironclad. There's no way around it. When you take a quaff, you are, for all federal purposes, for, excuse me, for all federal immigration purposes and probably other purposes too, you're very likely taking on a conviction. Matt, can I ask you something? Sure. So I remember, and maybe maybe people have gotten beyond this, but I remember during my time in district court that um, there was a widespread belief that if there were sentences that were under 365 days, so 364 days, for instance, if you took a quad, right. that, um, that that would not have immigration consequences. And my understanding is that is by and large incorrect. Um, do you know where that comes from and uh, why people might think that? <laughs> Well, I'm going to talk a little bit more about aggravated felonies uh, in a few minutes here, but that, I think where that, the, the kernel of that, which is true, is that there are some offenses for which if you get 365, and that's either committed or, or suspended, it's real time, not probation, um, that you are you will incur an aggravated felony. So that there is, but there's only a couple of categories that applies to. So but I can see how just to be safe, this rule might have developed, but I've seen it applied to things like OUI, which doesn't have immigration consequences. Um, other things like that, that that don't have 
where, where it doesn't really matter. And I can, but I can see how this would become kind of a, a shorthand rule of thumb for people that maybe aren't thinking about the system that much, certainly as much as I have to. Um, yeah, well, we'll talk about aggregated felonies in a minute too. But two concepts, inadmissibility and deportability, which is also called removability, but I like to call it deportability because that's really what it is. That's what it used to be called. Uh, they just changed it to make it seem a little more palatable because a deportation is a, sounds much more violent than removal. Um, but inadmissibility essentially keeps you from being able to get residency or other permanent status in the United States. And deportability means you already have residency or some permanent status, but typically residency, and that you can be deported because of this offense. So that's an important distinction. There are actually some categories of things, and this is where it gets even more confusing, and I'm not going to get into this, this level of depth today. But there are some places where you can actually be inadmissible but not deportable, where you might be deportable but not inadmissible. It is possible, um, but very unlikely. For the most part, you can think of them as, as the same thing, but again, when we're talking about the standard immigration warnings that you might be familiar with, exclusion from admission, we're talking about admissibility and the risk of deportation, obviously, we're talking about deportability. So those are two very important concepts. And there's also the third immigration consequence that's outlined in the, what Chicho will be talking about is denial of naturalization. And that applies to a number of other things we'll talk about as well. But those are the three major consequences that you're going to be excluded from admission, that you're going to be deported, or that you're going to be denied naturalization. So basically, and as a rough rule of thumb, assume that anything that involves drugs and guns uh, is going to be deportable and very and almost certainly inadmissible as well. So that's something to check in with an immigration attorney about. But you know that's ex extreme caution when you're approaching anything involving drugs or guns. I'll get into some, a couple other categories here as well. Um, so if you're trying to structure a plea, and part of what we wanted to talk about today is how to, how to stay away from needing post-conviction, trying to structure something that actually works for your client. Um, and sometimes this is impossible. We certainly understand that. But when it is possible to avoid immigration consequences, there are creative ways to do it. Um, certainly try to make sure, for example, that you don't actually sustain a conviction if possible. I think that's pretty obvious. But if you can get it dismissed with a fine, if you can have it null-prossed, obviously these are the outcomes we all want anyway. Um, but a guilty filed is not a conviction as it stands in Massachusetts right now. So you can have a guilty filed uh, and that is not an admission of guilt. As we know, that's just sort of setting it aside. That's a, that's a good one. There's also a general continuance is not actually considered to be a conviction for the same reason, because there's no actual colloquy. We're not doing anything to admit guilt. Um, and, you know, if, if possible, it's, it is often, there are creative ways for us to get around even some of the more stringent consequences by being more creative with the, the way that we structure these pleas. In some cases, I've, I've had clients take more time or more probation on a, on a charge that another person maybe born in this country would not um, in exchange for dismissing the more serious charge. There, there are ways to be creative and to get through this. But, you know, it's, and it's really worth considering. Um, and again, not always possible, but when it is possible, you know, you're talking about somebody's future in the United States, it's a pretty heavy consequence. Will this actually have immigration consequences? So again, assume it will, just trying to hammer this in, if it involves drugs, it's basically, you start with the same letter, drugs equals deportation, even possession of drugs, even a tiny amount, even with a quaff, those are always going to be a problem because at this point you can't be, of course, convicted for small uh, amounts of marijuana unless you have intent to distribute. Um, so that's not going to be an issue, but larger amounts of marijuana can still be a problem for immigration. Um, and anything that involves the word trafficking, I think I'll mention that in a minute. But, and I just want to be very clear, when I say that even a tiny amount, I mean even a dinky little possession charge from 20 years ago, you had a wine of coke on you at a party, that's enough to keep you from getting a green card for the rest of your life. And there's no waiver for it. It's one of the few things for which there's no waiver. So I really want to hammer that in as much as I can. 
Guns, always a problem for the same reasons. Anything that involves fraud, theft, or deceit, for reasons I'll talk about in a minute, all of those things um, you know, tend to have immigration consequences because they have a level of mens rea that's higher than other offenses. Anything involving violence other than straight assault, uh, you, should be, you should be assumed that it's very likely to incur immigration consequences um, and certainly very likely um, you know, A and B with any kind of aggravating factor is going to be an issue. Domestic violence and uh, restraining order violations, those are both serious issues. That's a whole separate ground of deportability in the Immigration Nationality Act. So if you have an offense in which an element of the offense is that the victim is a member of the household, um, then that's going to be an issue uh, if the facts reflect that. Aggravated felonies. You might have heard this expression. Just want to make sure that I'm... Can yeah. I ask you a question really quickly? Yeah, sure. Well, I think probably the most commonly prosecuted, um, well, certainly the most common type of case that goes to trial in Massachusetts and the district courts, and I think overall because of that, um, are OUI cases. And you mentioned right. earlier that, so I just figured it was worth just asking you to, to repeat what you said about OUI cases since they're so incredibly common. So you're saying these are cases that we should assume it, it will lead to deportation. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to OUIs, the, the, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the assumption is the opposite, right? That it does not automatically lead to immigration consequences. Right. And the U.S. Supreme Court actually examined that in U.S. v. Leocal. And uh, they specifically determined, because the mens rea, obviously, for OUI is not intent. Um, you know, you're, you're doing something reckless. Because it doesn't have the requisite mens rea, it can't rise to the level of anything that has immigration consequences. And coincidentally, it's one of the most popular crimes in the country. Of course, about a million people per year are arrested for OUI, and it happens to affect a lot of people who have money because you have to have a car. So you can draw your own conclusions, I guess, about why it doesn't have immigration consequences. One uh, thing I would add is, yeah. I think these assumptions you should make when your client has no record of it. Because you, if your client has some prior record, yes. these calculations would change. That's a very good point. Very important. Um, because yes, if, if they're already done for, you know, and it could be that, you know, if they were to be encountered by ICE and I'll talk just very briefly about how that works, but, um, you know, and they may not ever be encountered by ICE, but if they have a record that already puts them in the, in the fire, then you're not going to be, I mean, obviously try if you can to avoid it, but, um, that's going to be a different analysis for sure. Thank you. Um, okay. Aggravated felonies. So this is a category you might've heard of, but it's sort of the death penalty for immigration. Basically, it means you can't do anything at, the, if, at that point. If you have something that can be classified under federal law as an aggravated felony, um, these are categorical. So they, they don't have like a list somewhere of all the Massachusetts case uh, offenses that, that constitute aggravated felonies. It's something that the courts find case by case. Um, but we have a pretty good idea what they are by now. The CPCS actually put together a pretty good chart. Um, of the most common immigration consequences. You can find it if you Google Massachusetts immigration consequences chart. Well worth having on hand. It's not perfect, but it's a good reference. It's not totally comprehensive, but it's got basically everything that you'll need to see. Um, I'm not going to go through every aggravated felony that exists, but just things to think about. This is where the one year comes in. Uh, so crimes of violence, and that is a much more narrow definition than you might think, but serious crimes of violence in which you receive one year of suspended or committed time. So that, that is not probation, but that is anything where it's, even if the whole balance of the sentence was suspended, that's still going to count. Obviously, if it's committed, that's going to count. So that's where the 364 versus 365 really can be an issue. Um, so, you know, it, believe it or not, assault and better, the dangerous weapon is not necessarily found to be a crime of violence, um, but it still may be safer to keep it at 364, just to be totally safe about that in case that changes or in case it is used against them that way. Um, but certainly we can imagine there's a whole range of other things that can be considered crimes of violence that are serious felonies. Um, theft and robbery, same thing, one year suspended or committed. 
and any possession with intent or distrib- distribution. So anything to do with distribution of controlled substances, it doesn't matter what the sentence is. And I want to be very clear about that. For most aggravated felonies, it doesn't matter what the sentence is. Just those two are the main ones. Um, and basically any offense against the government, tax fraud in a certain amount, um, you know, and, and obviously any number of other things you can think of that involve fraud. Um, but basically, these are the big ones. These are the ones we see the most often for aggravated felonies. And these are the things, if at all possible, you want to try to keep a conviction out. Um, the consequences include mandatory detention. If ICE does get you, they cannot release you, or at least an immigration judge can't release you, and they will not. You will lose your residency if you have residency. Um, and while there is no automatic bar to admissibility, you're almost certainly going to have qualify under a different ground of exclusion to not get your residency if you have one of these on your record. Um, but if you if you do find a lawful permanent resident, green card holder, who's facing an aggravated felony, they've got to talk to somebody and they have to think about anything they can do to try to avoid this conviction if possible. Because it's going to be not just whatever sentence is imposed, but it's going to be the loss of their residency and their life in the United States. Uh, aggravated felonies also have a mandatory denial of naturalization for the rest of your life. So, you know, if even if they don't catch you, and it's possible that you could, we have, I've met plenty of people with aggravated felonies in their records who would otherwise be deportable that haven't been caught up with yet. Um, if you do apply, they will find you, and you'll probably be in trouble. And you certainly won't get won't, won't get to become a citizen under any circumstances if you have one of these on your record. So that's the one category. The other category, oh, mandatory deportation in most cases, almost all. Uh, forms of relief in immigration court are going to be cut off from you. So that's very important too. The other major category is crimes involving moral turpitude. This is extremely ambiguous. I've always thought that the law should be something that anyone can read and understand. And most English speakers don't know what turpitude is. And most of my clients don't speak English as their first language. So you can imagine the confusion here. Um, It sounds like something you use to remove paint, but it's actually just bad stuff. Vase, vile, and depraved conduct that shocks the public conscience. This is very similar to the definitions we've seen. Uh, it doesn't have to be quite as extreme as it might sound, as we'll talk about in a second. But it's a va- it's basically the easiest way to think about CIMTs is it's going to be anything with a uh, level of mens rea above recklessness. That's generally speaking for most things, and, and especially if it involves fraud or theft. Um, but it's a very broad category. I mean, you can have a shoplifting offense that carries no jail time. You can have child sex abuse, child pornography as, as you know, CIMTs, obviously. We'll talk about margarine in a second. Uh, but just generally as a rule of thumb, you can assume, and I'm being very broad here, this is something you really do want to check with somebody about and really think about, but a mens rea above recklessness is going to be one. And it matters because if you get a CIMT within five years of residency, you're deportable. If you get two at any time, you're automatically deportable. So that's that's actually another, to, to Chi-Chi's point about prior record, if somebody already has one CIMT, at the point at which they get two, they're really going to become a target. So that's something you want to consider as well. Um, and again, if somebody has a record and they, they are not a citizen, it's probably best to just have an immigration attorney analyze that record. Um, and again, this is categorical. There's a huge mess about how we actually determine these categorically, which I'm not going to spend any time on today. Uh, I can't believe it has immigration consequences. I'm mentioning butter again because of my favorite one is passing margarine off as butter. This used to be a big issue, uh, especially in Vermont when uh, Derek rules the world. Uh, it used to be that, you know, back when margarine was invented, margarine, of course, its natural state is actually a pretty gross gray that nobody would want to eat. So they were coloring it to look like butter and passing it off as butter. That is a CIMT because you're committing a crime, an offensive fraud, obviously. Uh, pickpocketing and turnstile jumping. These are very small offenses in the greater scheme of uh, criminal law, but they matter a lot for immigration purposes because, again, they have that element of theft. 
tax dodging, you're stealing from the government, child sex abuse. You wouldn't think that this, this would belong in the same list. That's it, certainly it's a we've just jumped quite a, quite ahead a in the spectrum of criminal behavior. Uh, I just mentioned pickpocketing. That is supposed to say shoplifting, but I guess I really wanted you to know about pickpocketing. Uh, I wanted to mention shoplifting specifically because it doesn't have a possibility of jail time on a first offense, which means that you're not necessarily, I mean, as I understand it, you wouldn't necessarily be appointed an attorney as a matter of right, although I think they generally do. Um, so it's the one I can think of where you wouldn't necessarily be appointed an attorney and might think it's very logical to just enter a plea and take, I think it's a $50 fine on a first offense, but you would actually be committing a crime involving moral turpitude, you'd be admitting the, the elements of that at that point. So even something as small as shoplifting, which is about as one of the smallest offenses I can think of, certainly the smallest offense, uh, smallest uh, consequence I can think of carries this major consequence. Uh, but manslaughter doesn't necessarily, taking someone's life isn't necessarily a crime involving moral turpitude um, because it can be reckless. And if it involves you know, a range of, of conduct that's greater than that, uh, the leading case on this from the First Circuit is actually from a Rhode Island situation in which someone ran up to his neighbor in the in the street and shot him in the back of the head. And that was found not to be a crime involving moral turpitude, but shoplifting is. So you can draw your own conclusions about how well the system's working out. Uh, the categorical approach to crimes involving moral turpitude is a lot of fun, and I could say, spend another hour on it. But it's something that really only perverted immigration lawyers are interested in, so I'm going to skip over that. Basically speaking, you can use that rule of thumb I mentioned before. I'm just going to pull it up again that it's safest to assume that if the mens rea is above recklessness, it's likely a CIMT. That's a very broad rule, but that's, a, that's the best way to look at it, I think. All right. Chi Chi. All right. Thank you, Matt. Before I start, Matt mentioned that the CPCS Immigration Impact Unit has a chart. That chart was last updated in 2018, and oh, yeah. Of updating that chart because they found it confusing to attorneys, but it's still a very good store source as a starting point, and they still update their guide. So if you don't have any resources, it's a good way to start your research. And if you're a bar advocate, always try to come reach out to the Immigration Impact Unit at CPCS. They have really experienced attorneys that can give you some particular advice to your client's case. Sure. So if your client is facing trial or in the process of plea, I would always encourage that you talk to the prosecutor and inform the situation. In the middle sex specifically, we do, I help trial prosecutors to craft creative pleas to avoid immigration consequences if we find it something that we're interested in doing. So it never hurts to ask. You should always try to craft something that it could help your client. Unfortunately, if it's a situation where your client faces immigration consequences or they're looking to be a permanent resident or try to apply for citizenship and realize something is barring them from doing so, one way to approach it is post-conviction motion. Very common one we see is Padilla, where uh, different attorneys or defendants who claim that their plea counsel was ineffective for not giving them the proper or accurate uh, immigration advice. Another common type is under section uh, 29D, where defendant will claim that the plea judge never gave a required immigration warning. All right, so I'll go to the next slide. So under Padilla, which is, I would say is the most common type of immigration motions we see in middle sex. The most common type is obvious, like I say, when plea counsel did not give a proper advice and the most common case was he is Clark. The different type which we see from time to time is if a defendant has immigration consequences leading up to trial and actually got convicted of a crime after trial. You can still argue Padilla, but the argument is if I had been advised properly, I would have taken a plea 
but there's a different requirements you have to meet. Obvious one is the prosecutor will have given you a different type of plea that's different from the result from the trial verdict. So these are two types of motions. The very common type is obviously when there's a plea issue. One thing you have to watch out for is if you do federal practice, Padilla is not attractive. In Massachusetts, because the court found that there was a change in federal law and they expect attorneys to know that change. So Padilla is attractive in Massachusetts back to 1996 or 1997, depending on the conviction. There are two cases mentioning how we apply the retroactivity in this situation, but really depends on the conviction. Right. Um, so, I'm sorry, yeah. I just want to um, stop just for, for one second. Um, and something I should have said at the very beginning that, that applies for both me and Chi Chi, obviously, not, not Matt, um, is that um, obviously anything that we're saying um, is is based on our own personal opinion or understanding the law and doesn't represent the, the views of, of our employer, but, you know, which is the Commonwealth on both of our... Anyway, Chi Chi, go, go on. Thank you, Casey. So if you decide that there's a merit to your client's claim of that plea counsel was ineffective, you bring this a very common type of PDA motion. You use what we call the Saffron standard, which is the, the very common standard to use for ineffective counsel. To do that, you have to prove two things. One is the plea counsel's performance was deficient. There's a language saying that fell measurably below that expected from ordinary caliber terms. These terms are really vague, and I, I could tell you lawyers and judges have very different opinion about what ordinary lawyers should know. Um, but that's one standard. If you can prove the plea counsel from was wrong or inadequate, then you have to prove that the defendant was actually prejudiced by that performance. So how do you prove that performance prompt? The very first thing is, obviously, your client has to sign up to David claiming that it was ineffective from plea, from plea counsel. One thing I would definitely encourage is to have to reach out to plea counsel, or try your best to reach out to plea counsel and get a affidavit from it. And for prosecutors, if you see there's an absence of that affidavit, it triggers a lot of questions for us, especially if we see attorneys, a common attorney practicing court, like why can you get affidavit, or explain why you couldn't get affidavit. So the absence of the affidavit is very crucial to the court and to the prosecutors. So if the law is very clear, like throughout mass presentation, like, you know, it's very clear for drug offense, PUE class B or PUE class C, A, whatever, it's very clear the defendant is deported. And if the defense attorney fails to advise properly, then it's deficient performance. However, there are some situations really tricky as to what the immigration consequences would actually be. For example, if someone is entitled to discretionary relief, so deportation is not inevitable. Then the court now suggests probably just say, you know, the conviction may carry immigration consequences. But this is an area that the court has not really developed. There aren't, there aren't that many cases talking about how we should deal with this situation when the law is not succinct or clear. But from now we can see is we should just say may, or you should provide a full-on explanation from immigration counsel if you have one met. Oh, and I just wanted to add that uh, it doesn't, just, just to be totally clear, because I've, I've heard some confusion on this point, too. Um, yeah. It doesn't really matter what the judge told them on the record at the plea hearing, right? Yeah, exactly. So it is the defense, it is plea counsel or defense attorney's own obligation. The court has their own obligation, and this is the, def the plea counsel's own obligation under Sixth Amendment to advise defendants properly. So 
above the back to the previous slide. Okay. Okay. So what type of migration constitutes to advise? Padilla was the deportation case. And throughout all the cases in Massachusetts, it's all about deportation. So does the defense attorney have obligation to advise inadmissibility, naturalization, lots of EPS or lots of DACA in terms of the Padilla motion? We don't know for sure, but there are a lot of cases in Massachusetts in the appeals court kind of suggest that inadmissibility is a requirement. Well, I don't know for sure where the court is going to go, but as a proper defense attorney, you should probably advise your client on everything as much as you could. But what does it mean in the Padilla motion world? We don't know for sure. And this is one topic the court will spend some time to develop throughout the years. Um, I will just add, it's my position as a defense attorney that uh, you should be advising on everything that's in the alien warnings that we'll talk about in a minute. That's just me. Yeah. So if you can establish that the plea counsel's performance was inadequate or deficient, you have to prove the second thing, which is the prejudice problem. It's a two-step process, and I've seen a lot of attorneys missing the second step. The first step is have to establish a so-called factor. So there are three factors that Massachusetts uh, court created. If you accept one of these factors, then you prove the second step. You have to go to the second step. One of them is available substantial ground of defense. For example, if you have, if you have very powerful or strong motion to suppress, what's never argued, you have a really good uh, trial strategy or trial theory that could have worked. That's a factor. If you meet one of these, then you meet your burden and you can move to the second step. The second one is reasonable probability to negotiate a different plea without immigration consequences. And that's the key. A lot of friends would suggest, you know, could have negotiated uh, the charge down to avoid immigration consequences, or PLT file, PTP, or dismissal, or no process, whatever it is, you have to be reasonable when you make that suggestion because the Commonwealth might seize that point and uh, aggressively respond, depending on the type of cases. So when you make that reasonable probability argument, you want to be reasonable. <laughs> The very last one, I think a lot of defendants would have this special circumstance supporting in a conclusion that they will, they would have or they actually place emphasis on immigration consequences. It could come from, you know, during the plea, defendants have a lot of questions or have a lot of confusion about immigration consequences. Or through the conversation with plea counsel, they ask a lot about immigration consequences. Or they have families, or they were refugees, they came to the U.S. as a child. A lot of different reasons why someone would play emphasis on immigration consequences. And if the court finds there's special circumstances, they also need it for them. Chi Chi, can I just, um, so for that one, for special circumstances, yeah. um, so the idea there, I just want to, I want to sort of like, uh, so my understanding of the idea of your special circumstances is essentially that somebody's immigration situation is such that they would have chosen to go to trial even knowing let's say somebody is charged with armed robbery or something like that that even knowing that that's a really serious charge they could face a lot of prison time that they nonetheless would have chosen to go to trial and roll the dice in front of a jury um even if they didn't have a strong defense because immigration uh was so important to them right if they were here from the time they were like a year old um, and they don't have anybody in the country that they're from, and they don't speak you know, children here. You know, I think my understanding is of that prong is that those are the types of situations in which that might be persuasive, right? Like there might not be a good defense, but you might right. roll the defense, dice and go to trial anyway. That's, I think, one the way to establish the burden, but it's not that demanding for special circumstances. 
Yeah, if you just have some factors for the defendant with your client that they will actually consider immigration more than going to jail, whatever it is, then you have special circumstances. The court has been pretty open about finding special circumstances, especially if someone comes to the U.S. as a child when they have no choice or they come as a refugee, they have to flee from their own country. These obviously someone would want to stay in the U.S. for obvious reasons. And if you can assess one of these clock factors, you have to go into the second step, which is whether under the totality of the circumstances, there's a reasonable probability that a reasonable person under defendant's shoes would have rejected the plea and go to trial. This is one factor I see a lot of defense attorneys would miss. They will focus on the clock factors and didn't argue the second step. And when you do a motion, you have to actually finish all these criteria under the law. Right. Yeah. So wait, you know what? Why don't we just just I just want to quickly like run through it again because I'm one of those people. I feel like the more times I hear something, like the more helpful it is. So under Padilla, right? For Padilla motions, there's the ineffective assistance prong, and that's whether or not um somebody, obviously an attorney's um behavior fell measurably below what you would expect from an ordinary fallible attorney. So whether or not they gave bad advice. And so that's obviously can be any any range of things and you know you can argue what, what you're going to argue and then the second prong is whether or not one of the clark factors um is met um so whether there's an available substantial ground defense um whether there was some sort of reasonable probability they could have negotiated a better plea or whether there are special circumstances that suggest that this is somebody that would have put a special emphasis on 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 immigration and then the second step of that is whether under the totality of all the circumstances there's a reasonable probability that a reasonable person in that person's circumstances would have rejected the plea and gone to trial anyway, regardless of um, of anything else. Just, exactly. just to- yeah, that's a perfect recap. Thank you. And other forms of post-conviction motions to challenge conviction based on immigration is Section 2090 motion. So if you you should know in Massachusetts, regardless of someone, the judge should never ask the defendant the citizen or. So there should really not be asking that. This should, what they should do is in every single plea, they should advise that if you're not a citizen of the United States, you're advised that acceptance of this court's your guilty plea, plea of a notal contender rate, admission description in fact, may have the consequence of deportation, exclusion from admission to the United States, or denial of naturalization. The, the court does not need to give this warning verbatim, but if you could, they should give this verbatim because if it's actually a mission, but the judge only says plea of guilty. That's probably going to be very confusing to the defendant, and that's probably a defective warning. Or if the judge only said deportation, or you know, it may have the consequences of exclusion. But exclusion from what? So these consequences or the type of mission is very crucial to a defendant making the decision and for the 2090 warning to be proper. And I'll add, and I'm sure you've seen this many times, uh, that judges are now modifying this to, to with language like it's virtually inevitable in, in a serious felony when they know that it's probably an aggravated felony. Without giving specific immigration advice, I think that is helpful for a judge to just say this, you're going to be deported. Um, and again, Padilla still comes down to counsel's advice, but since, if we're going to focus on this, many judges are trying to lock that in. Uh, I will add just on a practical note that these don't come up much anymore. Judges are very good about giving these for the most part. It's always worth listening to the record. You want to be sure. Uh, but you know, not, you know, not even that long ago, 20, 30 years ago, they weren't that much. Not that we have recordings, um, but it, you know, and sometimes the the face of the docket doesn't even reflect. So it's always worth checking that as you're about to talk about. It, I'm sure. Yeah, and Matt brought a really interesting, very good point, which is some judges would still now say the conviction is practically inevitable. That's an all warning from Rule 12 of, of criminal procedure. 
Mm-hmm. After Petitong from SJC, the court has abolished that warning. So the okay. judge now should never give that warning anymore because Petitong SJC found that warning very confusing because the judges would not know the defendant's status, record, everything. So that warning has been eliminated. So you shouldn't be hearing that in court. We still hear them from time to time. We try to advise judges there's an updated version of the warning, but that should not be happening. I, I just heard in a record I reviewed yesterday. Wow, okay. Well, they, they did it for quite a while, like after Padilla yeah. came out, because I think there were a lot of concerns about this. And, yeah. and like Chi-Chi said, like it, it doesn't surprise me like if some people are still doing it because it took, I mean, at the beginning, well, beginning of both of our careers, Matt, like, you know, in 2005 through, I would say, ap- well after PD, even though this is 29D, um, there were judges that, that didn't give these warnings in, in every case. Like, I, I actually remember hearing judges say things in district court, like, well, your client's a citizen, right? Like, and then they, they would just move on. And of course, it would later turn out that person had been here since they were very young. In some cases, they might even believe they were a citizen and, uh, and they wouldn't give the immigration warnings. I don't think that that is common anymore thankfully but yeah. it takes a while for people for people to get out of that habit of once they start doing it yeah i think judges nowadays are fairly standard they will have a packet and they'll read from the packet issued by the trial court which is more standard now so if you find that your client's case most likely decades ago had some deficiency in the warning likely your client told you i never got that warning from the judge and then they give you a basis to file this motion. Once you file that motion with your client's affidavit, the Commonwealth always has the burden to show that warning was given. And the, the motion can be filed at any time. There's no time limit whatsoever. The Commonwealth always carries the burden. The way to, for the Commonwealth to carry the burden, the easiest way, obviously, is the transcript or the recording. But most of the time, because the time passage, we don't have the recordings or the transcript from the court. So the common way for us to do it is Look at the docket. If the docket has a check box in Jean Louis, the appeals court case, which published a couple of months ago, it's my own case, um, clarify that notation itself is enough. The Commonwealth need not show the content itself. We don't have to show, but the Commonwealth is designed to show exactly what was given to the defendant. As long as the notation that was given, then that's sufficient to meet the Commonwealth's burden. Another type a way for the account to meet its burden is when there's no notation whatsoever, we might be able to reach out to the plea judge and say, do you remember your practice back then? You know, do you regularly give these warnings? Do you comply with the, with the rule or the, or the statute? And if they're comfortable doing that, they will file that saying, this is my practice. I incorporated at this time. I've been doing this for years. This is called a Chiampa statement. That's also sufficient for the Commonwealth to carry its burden. If the if the Commonwealth carries burden, then that's the end. The motion will be denied. If the Commonwealth cannot fulfill its burden, there's still another criteria. It's not a very complicated one, but it is the criteria, which which is the immigration immigration consequence must be material to the lack of warning. For example, if the defendant is not warned of exclusion from the mission, but the only consequence is deportation, then you cannot get relief. There has to be a connection between the lack of warning and the immigration consequence. Another thing is, if your client has a different charge or conviction on his record that triggers independently for immigration consequence, then your client cannot get immigration relief. That's also from Jean-Louis. The court declined to overturn its uh, prior precedent in disorder in the 80s. 
So that is the world of 2090, and that's pretty settled at this point. Chi-Chi, could I ask you a question quickly or not? Um, so uh, I know in the past that there, and this was a while ago, there was, um, there was a certain, the defense had to make a showing as to the likelihood of this, um, of, of that specific immigration consequence um, coming to pass. Could you just talk maybe briefly about like what type of showing that actually is at this point? Like for instance, for like, if somebody wants to says they want to travel or you know the likelihood of exclusion for admission if they leave the United States or denial of naturalization. Yeah, I, I think at this point it's fair to say that if you have a conviction that qualifies for deportation or in the mission or denial of naturalization, that would be enough. For decades, there's a lot of discussion, like you know, how material does it have to be? For a while, the court was like, well, it's not gonna happen yet, so that's not enough. But the courts move away from that. Basically, it's, if it qualifies, then the consequences material and real. Yeah. <clears throat> um, okay. So I think I want to talk about a few practical things, just some practice tips with all of this. Um, I do think so much of this is practical and because this is one of the most annoying things you can bring to a court. Uh, I can tell you as somebody who's brought a lot of them, uh, courts don't like it. Plea counsel doesn't like it. It's kind of a slog to get these done sometimes because you're talking about cases that are often 30 years old, 25 years old. Um, so I'll just run down a couple of things that can make this a little easier. Starting with reviewing with your client, make sure that you have a good solid basis in this motion. We've already talked about knowing your client's status. That's very important. But just ask them if they remember a conversation with the judge on the record. If you're talking about 29D, uh, sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. Ask them if they remember discussing this with their attorney and you know what their attorney told them and try to get exact language if possible. Sometimes people do remember these conversations pretty well. Um, and I've had a I've had attorneys tell people I've had attorneys tell clients everything from, you know, don't worry about it. You're, you're going to have problems, but ICE is never going to catch you, which is not acceptable advice uh, to, you know, this is no problem at all. This is not going to be, you know, just get through the plea and it'll be fine. And that's just obviously, if, if they're telling them there's no immigration consequences, that's a pretty serious uh, Safarian issue, obviously. Uh, and speaking of Safarian, approaching plea counsel, this is probably the most difficult part of the whole thing as, uh, as a defense attorney, because you have to go back and as in any ineffective assistance motion, it's not as hard as some ineffective assistance arguments, because what you're, what you're saying is not that you're not saying plea counsel showed up drunk to the hearing. You're not saying that he was completely unable to comprehend what was going on. You're just saying that plea counsel made... Uh, was below the standard on one point in his, and I, I've certainly, even yesterday when I was dealing with this with, with the case I was reviewing, I was very careful to let plea counsel know I thought he did a great job on everything but this one piece because he, his presentation at the plea hearing was very good. He clearly had counseled my client on the elements of the offense and understanding what, what his consequences were going to be, but he had not, he, he told him, he didn't tell him explicitly that there were going to be immigration problems and he just did not tell him that and that, that's enough to trigger a Padilla case. So you want to be careful how you approach complete counsel. It's best to try to get something in writing. Um, depending on kind of the situation, I can feel it out. Sometimes I'll call ahead. Sometimes I'll just email and ask for an email response. Um, if they're amenable, then I will draft a quick affidavit for them to review and edit. And if they want to sign that affidavit, then sometimes they will. And often, you know, plea counsel can be very amenable to these things, especially if it was a long time ago. And the fact is, you know, as Chichi said, these were not the standards necessarily that everybody was applying in 1996, 1997, but the court has chosen to treat it as if that's how it is. 
Uh, these are things that certainly could have been known at the time. And so I think a lot of people, they have no trouble admitting that, you know, back in 2002, I wasn't giving specific advice as to immigration warnings because nobody was. And that, that doesn't really cost them a lot of skin off their back to just admit that. So that's one thing that, you know, you can negotiate these things, just approach it with care and, you know, make sure that you respectfully counsel in this process, of course. Um, and then dealing with the court, which is probably after you get something out of plea counsel or not, as, as Chichi said, the absence of an affidavit can also be evidence. I have an email right now from that case I was just looking at in which I asked plea counsel after, after laying everything out, if he'd be open to signing an affidavit. And his response was no, absolutely not, period. And that was his, his response. And that's fair. That's his right. Um, but I can take that to the judge and say, this is plea counsel's response to my questions. Um, but once you have gotten something that you can use one way or another or not, then you can go to the court. And that's where things you really have to make sure you're coming in with a box of chocolates because you're going to ask the, the clerk to be going downstairs. Uh, in any given court, they're going to have to go downstairs. They're not going to want to do it. Uh, understandable. They have busy jobs. The clerks do a lot for us. We want to make sure that we respect the fact that they're going to have to dig through archives to get this case. Um, and then you're going to have to bring it forward for a hearing for the first time in 30 years. And so, you know, just navigating all of that, you will have to bring it in front of the, the same plea judge who took the plea because it's a post-conviction motion. So that plea judge may have retired. That plea judge may be sitting in a different court across the state. The case is going to follow that judge. So you're going to find her wherever you find her. And, uh, you know, that, that's you're just going to have to go through whatever it takes to get that case in front of them. So there's just a lot of practical considerations, I think, more than other kinds of, of uh legal work in post-conviction work generally, but especially in these, which often involve older cases. Um, okay. So I think that's what I have for practical considerations. Uh, Chi Chi, do you have, yeah, no, good. Let me ask you this. I'm going to ask Chi Chi something similar. Um, what, what do you think, what would you like either prosecutors or other defense attorneys to know about these sorts of motions? Like what would you like them to be aware of in general? Like, um, you know, some like do you have like pet peeves? Do you have things you'd really like to convey either to prosecutors or to, to other defense yeah. attorneys? I think it's some things I would do I would do myself if I were a defense attorney. One thing is be more collaborative, like reach out to the prosecutors. Like I understand some prosecutors have different you know, reputations, whatever, but I could I could comfortably say, you know, prosecutors around Greater Boston or in the Commonwealth are they're all very willing to listen. So if if you have a sympathetic case. Talk to the ADA assigned. Now talk to the ADA to see if there's any alternatives they can do. Sometimes they might be able to reach an agreement with you in order to assent the motion and makes everything much easier for your client. And sometimes the prosecutors will just come back to you like, hey, this your client's case, we review it. We think maybe we can reach a different solution that would help your client while we keep the conviction. For example, we offer a guilty file to take it. But if you say no, you've got to be ready to explain why you wouldn't take a guilty file. We have attorneys in some cases who say yes, some cases who say no, but wouldn't explain to us why. And that gives a lot of red flag to prosecutors when you have inconsistent approaches to cases. Um, like I like man mentioned, I talked about earlier, definitely reach out to the counsel. It's a really big red flag when it's not explained why that's not done. And if somehow the prosecutor was the one, reach out to defense counsel. That would be very interesting at that point. Um, another thing is provide some background information after the plea. It's useful, I guess, to see how sympathetic it is the case can be. But I would say don't use those in your motion because it's obviously not relevant. And some prosecutors, they might look at it and be like, why are you wasting my time reading something that's irrelevant? To the court as well, no one wants to read hundreds of pages of papers. So 
some background is definitely very useful. I definitely encourage that. And I love seeing you know, each defendant's background story to see how we can assist if it's something we can assist. So that's one thing you can put in. Uh, understanding your client's records and be realistic about the case is very important. So if you, if it goes back to you know, be reasonable, talk to the ADA to see something you can reach together, that would be great. And provide some dockets, police reports, and green sheet. Now that would that'll be very helpful for your case, especially in the prejudice prompt, you know, special circumstances, alternative plea, substantial ground of defense. Those are all very necessary for your motion. We've seen motions from time to time where there's just one affidavit from the defendant and nothing else. And that kind of motion is not very helpful. And the one last thing is be very specific about the special circumstances your client has. A lot of people just say, oh, I have strong ties. But strong ties in what way? Like you have, you have a type, you, you attend work in the States, you have all the family and friends, you've never been back to your home country. All these little details would explain to the prosecutor and to the court how strong your special circumstance is. So be specific, it will be very helpful. Matt, do you have any, um, do you have anything you would like to convey either to you know, prosecutors or other defense attorneys or both? Um, well, for plea counsel, I would just ask if possible that you do cooperate. I mean, one way or another, like we're probably going to be filing this motion. I know it's not always easy, but we're not asking you to admit anything that's, I, I don't think is too egregious. Um, but that's just my perspective. Of course, I'm just trying to get these filed. But for prosecution, um, present company excluded, of course, but I have run into prosecutors who don't want to hear about the humanity of these cases. And I, I don't, I'm not in the habit of, of overloading the record with page after page, you know, letters from their third cousin and everything. Like, I want to make sure that if I'm putting in humanity, and when I show you the humanity, I'm going to do that in a very targeted way that you can easily understand, you know, as soon as you, you review it, you can see this is who this person is and why they're here. Um, but, you know, I, I guess my, my complaint on that has been that often I do feel like sometimes these, these consequences are not being seriously considered what they actually mean for somebody's life. Because, you know, if you or I born in the United States, uh, case they were to get into something like this, then we pay the consequence. We go to prison, we come out and we, we make our lives again best we can. But for someone who is facing permanent deportation with no possibility of reunion with their family ever, unless they move to their home country, uh, going back to work with many people from Cambodia, for example, where they came as refugees and where their families are suffering from severe PTSD over whatever the terrible things that happened there. And they, they do not want to go back under any circumstances. Um, and, you know, just considering what it actually means for someone to be permanently separated from their families, from everything they've known, often over things that happened when they were in early adulthood or teenagers, often over things, um, you know, that, that uh, and the, in the grander scale may not be as important as the consequences. I mean, I think that almost always the, the, the consequences in these cases with people, especially who've been here a long time, are just ridiculously disproportionate uh, to what they've done. And it, it amounts to much more than a second sentence in many cases. So I, I guess, you know, that, that's just my plea for humanity on that. Not to anybody present, but just generally, uh, I just wish that prosecutors, it's my, my one thing, I guess, if you're asking. Yeah, and I do think for what it's worth that I think Chi-Chi said something that um, I think is true, which is in the greater Boston area, I can't speak for anywhere else. I mean, I really can't speak for anybody, but um, I do think there's been more of a willingness in recent years, uh, if you can get a hold of somebody, yes. uh, to which in Middlesex you'll be able to. but. Um, I think there's been more of a willingness to listen. And I think that the I think that where this comes from, the the sort of unwillingness to to listen or consider these consequences is that for many, many, many years before Padilla, 
Um, these were considered collateral consequences. Legally, they were collateral consequences, and nobody had any duty to to advise on them. Um, the courts, the Massachusetts courts, were really clear on that point. And so, I think that I think the attitude is a little bit of a holdover from from that time period. And legally, these were not considered consequences that were things that should be considered. And I think that that's I do think that's changing, um, at least in in the Greater Boston. I really am not you know familiar with areas outside. Um, Middlesex or Suffolk, to be honest. But um, yeah, so my, my hope is, is that I think people are considering the, the full picture. I mean, I think considering the strength of the legal argument and the equities and balancing that against the the type of the case and the, versus the consequences, whether the case can be retried, whether there's a victim. I mean, there are a lot of considerations, um, but I, I, I do think that prosecutors are starting to consider the case more fully. Um, I know that in Middlesex you are. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I think that's that's a good point that sometimes we get so wrapped up like in the little worlds we operate in that, that we don't think outside of them. So that's helpful. And it's I, I I generally agree about Greater Boston, but it is not that way everywhere. And you can still meet resistance here, too. Um, and I, when I say resistance, I understand that you're doing your job. You're screening this carefully. You're making sure that the law is applied. Um, but, you know, it can be frustrating sometimes when you know, because you've gotten another family and you're, you're talking to this person every day, you know what the consequence really is. I'm sure. Um, what do you guys think? This is just my, I think probably my last question besides at the end, I'll ask if there's anything else you want to say, but um, do you, um, what do you guys think about whether or not you actually want to have evidentiary hearings? Because I know for a long time we pressed pretty hard. We opposed evidentiary hearings in like every case. And, um, and, you know, we had conversations about that, I know, at the DA's office um, about whether or not maybe there are cases where we where we do want evidentiary hearings. But what do, you, what do you guys think in terms of whether that's something you want to press for? I think for the Commonwealth, it's very simple because, like, these motions can be denied without evidentiary hearing. And that's probably the easiest way if we decide to oppose. And if the judge is leaning towards allowing the motion, then the Commonwealth has the right to evidentiary hearing under court and appeals court case. So that's really our approach. If we're opposing it, obviously we don't want an evidentiary hearing after we evaluate the case properly. And if we have this tendency that just the motion might be allowed, then we want evidentiary hearing to cross the examiner defendant and the plea counsel if that's possible. Um, yeah, I mean, when I'm filing a straight Padilla or 29D, there, there's not generally going to be a, a legal need for an evidentiary hearing. Everything is going to be on the papers for the most part, um, unless there's serious question as to, you know, if, if plea counsel is disagreeing and said, no, I absolutely provided this and you know, defense is saying they didn't, um, then that makes sense for an evidentiary hearing. But I don't usually ask for one. I, I want to make sure my client's available. That's the other thing. You want to make sure your client actually attends this hearing because you do want the judge to get a look at them. If possible, I want the judge to hear from them. Um, but, you know, as, as we've been talking about the humanity factors here, which I, I want the judge to hear directly from the client when possible, that's not necessarily evidence, that's discretionary. Um, so, you know, there are ways to get it in, but it's not necessarily required and sometimes not necessary at all. Thank you. I think we're, we have um, about five minutes left. If there are any questions, I didn't see any in the Q&A. Um, and if you guys, if you have anything else that you want to add. Um... One thing I guess I will add is, Sometimes attorneys would have a template for David's or motion, and it's perfectly understandable when you have a template, right? But when you have client affidavit, it's all from a same template without modification. That becomes a problem. And for the Commonwealth or the court to look at it, it's like, well, 
it doesn't really apply. This paragraph seems to be just a hodl from a different template. So I will just be more careful when you use a template to make it more specific to a specific case. Yeah, very good. Um, yeah, I just want to say that I'm available. If anybody wants to follow up, I'm very happy to talk about this stuff to advise when possible, provide opinions on, in these cases if necessary. Um, you know, this is complicated stuff. And as I said from the beginning, um, it, most of the time, it's just a really good idea. I think really almost always to have your client consult with an immigration attorney uh, or to check with one yourself to make sure you know what the full consequences of this are going to be. Sometimes they just can't be avoided, but you should go in with open eyes. And um, that's the whole point of Padilla. So I think that's all I've got. Great. Well, thank you guys so much. Um, that was uh, that was really helpful. Um, I appreciate both of you doing that. Um, yeah, and thank you for everybody that uh, that attended. Um, and Devin, thank you for um, for organizing. Just also want to hop on and say thank you so much to our panel for speaking today, and thank you so much to our audience for joining us. Have a wonderful afternoon, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.